2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 1, hear the word of the Lord. I, Paul, myself entreat you by meekness and by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble when face to face to you, but bold to you, toward you when I am away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Look at what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and for not destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. But let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray together with me? Father, as we approach your word, may we do it humbly. May we do it with faith, knowing that Your Word is our authority. And so as we approach it in faith, we approach it wanting to humbly receive, humbly obey, but we want to let it lead us to worship. And I pray for that to happen in our lives today. That we would be um, leaving this area, this time, this corporate gathering, having worshipped the one true living God. Stir our hearts and affections towards You. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. But it happens 24 hours a day for us all. It's this war that's going on. It's constantly waging all the way around us. There's this war that's going on for our hearts and for our minds. Trying to win us. Trying to capture us. Trying to gather our attention and our affection on something. So whether that's in Allstate commercials to say this is the place where you find security... And insurance and giving us money. Or rather it's it's in it's in a cruise where what is held up to you is this is ultimate joy. Does it get better than this? This is this is where it's at. Or any other commercial on TV that says this is what beauty is, this is what satisfaction is. There are all these things that are held up before us, or that we have in our own minds saying to us, This is what ultimate satisfaction, this is what ultimate fulfillment, this is what ultimate joy is. And that kind of war is raging around us all the time. And here's the reality is if anything offers all those things ultimate joy, ultimate fulfillment, ultimate satisfaction, that is outside of Jesus Christ, then those things are not just waging war on you and your individual lives, but waging war on the gospel itself. Because ultimate joy, and ultimate satisfaction, and ultimate security, and ultimate comfort, all those things aren't found in the things of the world, but they're found in the gospel. But there's always something trying to win our hearts and our minds. And here's what's going on in Corinth is that there are opponents that are trying to win the hearts and minds of the Corinthian church. They're waging war against not only Paul, but against the gospel as well. And so Paul is addressing some of his opponents that are doing this very thing, trying to steer people away from the gospel. And so in this passage, Paul is is seeking reconciliation with those who are still rebelling by waging war with this divine power of the gospel. 
So let's catch you up with with the context of 2 Corinthians. The first seven chapters, Paul has been defending his ministry, telling them this is what authentic ministry looks like. Here's my life, my ministry. Look at these things, examine these things. These things are validating to the gospel and to my ministry. And in chapter 7, he received good news from Titus that the, the Corinthians had received his words. And had repented of their sins, turned and went in a good direction. So we've seen chapters 1 through 7, kind of him defending his ministry. He gets good news. He hears of their repentance. And he says, here's how we can work this repentance out. Chapter 8 and 9, generous giving. So you're working out this repentance. In 10 through 13, the rest of 2 Corinthians, he, he shifts into who he's really addressing primarily. Because now he's starting to shift to, to point a little bit more directly at the people who are opposing him rather than the majority of people who have turned and remained faithful to him. And so this is what he's doing in 2 Corinthians 10. So Paul is, is going to bring up this imagery in 2 Corinthians 10 of, of warfare. And it's interesting how he begins because we have all these horrific ideas and, and crude things when we think about warfare. It's a, a horrible thing. But he starts out pretty interesting when using this imagery. Because here's what he says in verse 1. He says, I, Paul, myself, entreat you by the meekness and, humble, and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble and face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away. So he starts out with this emphatic, I, myself, and I, like I, Paul, myself. Like he, keeps, he wants to make this very personal. He's like stepping out. He's been personally attacked, and he's coming out to meet these opponents by himself. He's like, I want to appeal to you, but he does it interesting. He, he does it in a way that's appealing, that's entreating, that's not commanding. Now, let's think about these opponents, because what, what do we need to know about who these people are? And Paul talks about them in chapter 11. We'll see more about them as we go along. But in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 11, he says this, I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray. There's a a battle going on for thoughts for their mind. They're led astray from a sincere and pure devotion in Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaim, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. And so here's what's going on, is that there are these opponents that have come in, and they have taught a different Jesus, they have taught a different gospel, they are talking about a different spirit than the one Paul is talking about. And so Paul comes in using this imagery of warfare, and he entreats them. He appeals to them. He doesn't come in and command them. He doesn't come in and despise them and say, those are lousy opponents, these people that are doing these things are losers, don't listen. He doesn't do that. He appeals to them. And he does this because his goal isn't just to wipe his opponents off the face of the earth. His goal is reconciliation with these opponents as well. He wants to reconcile them even as he attacks them. Now there are some who, in history, that if you oppose their views, you would literally have war waged against you. Christians have done this, right? The Crusades are like, if you're not a Christian, we will come and destroy you. And there's not just Christianity, this is all across the board, this has happened. And, and, and oftentimes we do things like this, that we may not literally wage war on people, but if we have someone who has opposed us personally, we might start despising them, or attacking them and their character and who they are. We might start to detest and actually hate them. But not Paul. It's not what Paul does. He wars by appeal. He wars trying to reconcile. He wants to win these opponents' hearts and minds, as well as he's been trying to win the Corinthian church's heart and minds. He wants reconciliation with his opponents. Is that our goal? Paul steps out on the line. He's like, I, Paul, myself. He's putting himself out there against his opponents. He's facing them head on. And he doesn't just come and hand down judgment upon them, but he appeals to them. 
He could have done that. As an apostle of Jesus Christ, he had authority. He could have said, you know what, you guys are done. But he doesn't do that. And why doesn't he do that? He tells us why in verse 1. He says that he's appealing to them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Jesus, God of gods, could have come down to earth and commanded us to do anything he wanted. He could have laid down the law on us. He could have burdened us with all these things. He could have handed down upon us, because of our unbelief, final and ultimate judgment. I'm done with you. But how does Jesus minister to us? He's gentle. The the, the people would push others away from Jesus so that Jesus doesn't have time for you and you say, let the little children come. I have time for the lowly. I have time for the people that everyone else thinks aren't worth time. I have time for those. He's gentle. He meets a a Samaritan woman and and He doesn't just go after her adultery. What He goes after is He questions her. Draws her out. Says there's something better for you than the water that you're getting right now. He's gentle. He's kind. Thomas. Oh, Thomas. Chapter 14 of John. Jesus is like, guys, I'm, I'm going away. You can't come with me now. You'll come with me soon. He's like, we don't know the way. What are you talking about, Jesus? He's like, I'm the way, Thomas. Like, I'm the truth. I'm the life. Thomas, they come and tell him, like, we've seen Jesus. He's been raised from the dead. Thomas like, I'm not believing that. Not until I see him. And what does Jesus do? Like, he could have been like, you are not being very intelligent, Thomas. Right? These are your friends. You trust them. They say they've seen me, and yet you don't believe them. But he doesn't do that. He comes, come, like, see, like, touch Touch my scars. Like, it's Israel. He's, he's gentle. He's meek. He's meek. Think about his arrest. Jesus says that he had any time, any point in time, he could have called legions of angels, warriors that people are afraid of all through the scripture, to come and protect him and fight for him. But he doesn't do that. He lets himself be arrested. When they come to arrest him, they say they're looking for Jesus, and he says, I am, and they all fall to the ground. Right? He's got authority to handle them. But he lets them arrest him. That's meekness. It's not mousy and, and small. It's just this power that's constrained in the right direction. On the cross, they are mocking him. Saying, if you were really God, if you could really save, then you'd come down from the cross. And in his meekness, Jesus doesn't come down. Even though he has the power to come down. And it would have been interesting for him to think about, the very people I created have put me up here and are mocking me now. But he's meek. And Paul appeals by that same kind of gentleness, that same kind of meekness, even though he's the one attacked. As you see in verse 1, they say of him, I who am humble and face to face with you, but bold to you when I'm away. They're saying that he's cowardly, that he's weak, that he's a pushover. Like He sounds pretty hard, but don't worry about it. He's a pushover when you get around him. You think that he's sounding humble, but he's really just a coward. But Paul, we know, treated them like a father would treat his child. Tenderly, gently, meekly. And they interpreted that meekness and gentleness as weakness. See, look at Paul. He's so weak when he's in your presence. He's a pushover. But he's been gentle. He's been waiting. He's been kind. He's been meek. But he's hoping for something. He's been drawing them in all along. Hoping for their repentance. He's not a pushover. He's patient. And as they claimed, he says, he goes on in verse 2, I beg of you. 
that when I'm present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I plan on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Now, Paul's opponents would have evaluated him a certain way in their own terms, in their own way. So what did they value? What did they value in that culture? They valued wisdom. They valued power. They valued this great oratory skill where you had the great great intonations. You could work your voice the right direction. You could draw people in. You could do all these things. You could do something that would wow and amaze the people. And so they're evaluating him on these terms. And they're saying after their evaluation that Paul isn't up to par. He doesn't measure up. And so if he doesn't measure up, then he's not fit for ministry. He's not fit to lead you. Follow us instead. Like there's, a, there's better people. Look at us. Look at the wisdom that we have. That's how they would have evaluated him on their terms. They valued appearance. For all that we know, Paul looked like the penguin from Batman. Not something that they would have thought of as great. They valued oratory. He comes within this weakness and fear and trembling, he says. They value wisdom and he says, I'm coming and preaching you a crucified Messiah, which is folly. They valued power and Paul suffers constantly. They think, here's the problem, it's Paul. Paul's the problem, look at him. He doesn't look like anything, doesn't sound like anything. He suffers constantly, he preaches about a crucified Messiah. The problem is Paul, he's walking according to the flesh, so don't follow him. He's ministering according to the flesh. Don't follow him. And here's what they're doing is they're drawing the battle lines. There's, there's a war going on. Paul is, is acknowledging the war. They've drawn the lines. And he knows that it's about more than just him. And so Paul is not just uh, defending himself. He knows that if he's discredited, if he's discounted, then that means that the gospel is discredited. Because his whole ministry was based upon the gospel. That was his message. That was his ministry. It was ministering the gospel to believers and unbelievers. And so he wants to put these opponents in their place so that they can see the gospel in its place. But make no mistake about it. Paul's opponents were working for the hearts and minds of these Corinthians. They're warring against them. In Proverbs chapter 7, the the man who's writing the proverb is, is writing and trying to warn this son about these, these adulterous women. There's this adulterous woman that's, that's put in this passage who's, who's out in the streets. She's enticing, trying to draw him in. She's out there trying to convince. She's justifying things. She's persuading. She's compelling. And eventually it draws this one in like an ox to the slaughter, it says, and it costs this man his life. It's the same kind of battle that Paul's facing here. It's the same kind of battle that we face. We may not have a physical woman out there speaking into our ears trying to persuade us and draw us into sin and death. But there is something that is always trying to persuade us and entice us that this is where life is found. Life is on the line in this war that Paul is fighting here. Just like this woman in Proverbs chapter 7 leads this one to their death, these opponents leading them away from Paul will lead them to their destruction because they're not just going away from Paul, they're going away from the gospel. And so Paul is trying to keep the Corinthians and us from destruction by saying, I don't do ministry according to the flesh. I'm not walking according to the flesh. You're misinterpreting how things are going. This is a war, and Paul knows it's about more than himself. It's a war on the gospel from these opponents. And this war is constantly raging. There's always something trying to win our hearts 
in our minds. These opponents are trying to persuade, compel, convince these Corinthians that Paul is out of his mind, that you don't need to listen to him because they're putting something else in his place. Namely themselves and another message. So there's a war going on for the hearts and minds of these Corinthians. And Paul recognizes this war and he starts to do battle. But how does he do it? With what means does Paul use to wage war against his opponents? Well, first we see what he doesn't use. Look in verse 3. He says, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. So he walks in the flesh, that is, he walks in the human body. He doesn't, he walks in a human way, but he says we don't wage war in that way. We don't wage war in a human way. He's not fighting on their terms the way they would have wanted. The way they would have wanted was for Paul to have this great appearance, for Paul to have this great skill, for Paul to have this great wisdom, and Paul doesn't do it that way. He doesn't cave in to their terms. He fights war a little bit differently for these hearts and minds. If you look in verse 4, he says, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. And this is where Paul brings out this war imagery. And what he's, what he's picturing is a siege warfare. So there's these strongholds, there are fortresses, high walls, big and strong, hard to attack, easy to defend. He, he pictures these weapons, which would have been like these, these siege machines, where you, you're bringing them up to the wall so that you can get ready to attack and tear them down. But this is a, a formidable stronghold. It's a fortress and it has strong walls. And so you, some of us could look at that battle and say that that's, that's going to be hard to overtake. You don't storm fortresses without giving it some thought. But here's what Paul does. He sees how strong the walls are. He sees that there are strongholds in their midst and he doesn't withdraw. He doesn't sit by passively. He takes up his weapons and he storms the keep. Now in Ephesians chapter 6, Paul speaks about this armor of God. And I want to draw our attention to something that he repeats over and over again in Ephesians chapter 6. This repeated command, if you look in Ephesians 6 verse 11. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand. Stand against the schemes of the devil. For we not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of, an, of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Verse 14 says again, stand. He says this repeated command to stand. If you're on God's side, if you're on the side of the gospel, they're the same thing, then there's this battle going on against us all. It's raging all the time. So don't sit. Stand up and fight. Paul sees this formidable fortress. He sees this stronghold and he doesn't just sit around and do nothing and act passively. He's getting his weapons ready to storm the keep. He tells Timothy, Wage the good warfare. What Timothy was facing often were these false teachers that were coming and trying to win the people. And Timothy, he tells Timothy, you need to go and do battle against that. Because they're drawing the people away. They're winning people's hearts. You need to go and wage the good warfare. There's no sitting on the sidelines in Christianity. Our enemy isn't sitting on the sidelines and we're not supposed to be sitting on the sidelines. Stand! Do war. And there's a war that's constantly going on and Christians are called to jump into the fray. But how do we do it? How do we fight? How do we fight? What means does Paul use? 
This is a fortress. Not just anything will work. You can't just take like a little hammer up there and expect to get through the walls. But he uses these weapons, he says, of divine power. Some of you are old enough to know this. Like if you, if you think about the, the video game, this is what I picture when he talks about these weapons of divine power. Donkey Kong, you remember this on Atari and the arcade game? It's Donkey Kong up there being an evil monkey throwing barrels down at this guy the whole time after he's captured this princess. And all you have as your weapon is just jumping. You're just jumping these barrels the whole time. There's fire, there's barrels, and all you can do is jump. Jump. Until, like, there's this magic weapon. It's the only weapon in the whole game appears is this hammer. This hammer is awesome. You just start destroying everything. You, you, like, can't lose with the hammer. And that's what I'm thinking about here. Paul's talking about these divine weapons. I'm thinking, he's got the hammer in Donkey Kong, and he's just going through this thing with no problems. But he doesn't describe these weapons. So what, what kind of weapon has divine power and destroys strongholds? That seems like an important thing to know as a Christian, right? Like we face a lot. I would love to know what a divine weapon would be. Like has divine powers can destroy strongholds. But he doesn't give us much about it. He doesn't describe it very well. Or not at least the way that we would want it. But we can think about this. Let's think about what his opponents were doing. His opponents, he says, were claiming another Jesus. Claiming another gospel. Claiming something other than what Paul had taught them. And think about the content that Paul has had all through 1st and 2nd Corinthians now that we've kind of gotten through there. Has he not been clear the entire time with the gospel? Has he not been consistently applying, consistently proclaiming, consistently teaching the gospel to these Corinthians? Think about what he's relied on. In 2nd Corinthians we've seen it a lot. What's Paul relied upon to change their hearts, to change their minds? Clearly it wasn't his appearance. It wasn't his great skill in speaking. It wasn't his power. It wasn't his wisdom. No, he's relied upon the power of the gospel to save and transform. If you don't believe me, 2 Corinthians 3. We're just going to quick fly by in some of these verses. What does he say in 2 Corinthians 3? When one turns to the Lord, the, the veil is removed in verse 16. And now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. That is, the Spirit comes in, removes the veil, and you see Jesus rightly. The Spirit is the one who is doing these things. He's relying upon the Spirit. If you look in verse chapter 4, verse 5, for what we proclaim, what is He proclaiming? What is He relying upon? Is Jesus Christ. That's what we proclaim. With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, let the light shine out of darkness. Has shone in our hearts. Not Paul. God is doing this work. He is shining in the hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In chapter 5, great verse in verse 17. He says, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. Where is this from? All this is from God. In verse 21, he says, for our sake. He's proclaiming the gospel again to them about Jesus who was made sin when he knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In chapter 8, verse 9, and we could go on and on in First and Second Corinthians about how clear he is with the gospel, how clear he is with ministering by the power of the Spirit. In chapter 8, verse 9, he says, You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Like, we're, we're eight chapters in. This is the third, maybe more, letter that he's written to these Corinthians. And what does he remind them of in Second Corinthians 8, chapter 9? The gospel. Jesus Christ, for though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, though so that he might make your poverty so that those in their poverty might become rich. It's Jesus, 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 gospel, gospel, gospel. 
2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, all of his writing to them is all about the gospel. He's relying upon the power of the gospel to change and transform their lives. He came preaching and teaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, calling them to repent and believe. And he's put his trust in the whole time, not his appearance, not his seal, not his power, but by the power of the Spirit to take that gospel and transform their hearts. So to wage war in that way is to wage war with divine power. It's to wage war not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And guess what? It's worked. The Gospel is the power to save. The Gospel is the power to change. One author has written about what we should hope for and long for with unreached peoples. And one of the things that he talked about is that we should think about and hope and dream about that these unreached people groups would rise up and that they'd be the chief theologians. That they'd be the best hymn writers rivaling the, the Wesleys and the Watts. That they'd be the people that are writing the books and the tales, the epics like Lewis and others. And he says this, And some, to those who would scoff at the notion that the greatest theologians, philosophers, and culture makers in history of a church might eventually hail from Somalia, or China, or Afghanistan, remember this, one fact. A thousand years ago, Vikings from Saxony, Norway, and Denmark were raping and pillaging their way across Europe. They worshipped this one-eyed, bloodthirsty god Odin and fought under the banner of the Black Raven. Happy Mother's Day, by the way. And before battle, this gets even better for you mothers. They ate hallucinogenic mushrooms, painted themselves blue, and ran naked into the fray. Pick this specifically for this day. But 500 years later, one of their heirs nailed a piece of paper to a door that ignited the Reformation. His name was Martin Luther. So from mushroom-crazed berserker to Christ-exalting worshiper, that's what the gospel does. That's what happens when the grace of God lands among rebels and turns them into friends of God. Amen. There's a man named Dr. John Getty. You may have heard of him, missionary to the Polynesian Islands. He and his wife went to serve in these Polynesian islands after a tragedy, by the way. A missionary had been clubbed to death, ministering to people who had never heard the gospel. And they were inspired by this and went to these Polynesian islands. And they worked there for 24 years, translating the Bible, evangelizing, and training these people. And this is written in his memory. It says, When he landed in 1848, there were no Christians. And when he left in 1872, there were no heathen. And this inspired, you may have heard of this guy, John Patton, to go to those islands as well. In Acts, we see this small band of disciples, a handful of them, scared, not knowing what to do. Peter jumps out to preach this gospel that he's just received and seen and taken part of. He preaches and 3,000 were added that day. Do you want to know what destroys strongholds? You want to know what can rip down fortresses and tear apart all these things that the world lifts up? You want to know what has divine power to save? It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the message of Christ crucified. It's the good news that through the life, death, and resurrection, we can have peace and reconciliation with the Holy God. Amen. Believer, look at your own life. Like, have not false gospels penetrated your life? 
Have you not accepted teachings that thought this was the way of life? And have not those things now been ripped down by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Great oratory doesn't do that. The best wisdom doesn't change hearts like that. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can do that. And we have the same gospel available to us. The same power at work in it. There's power in the spoken gospel. Paul says that faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. The the hearing of the gospel of Jesus Christ can rip down fortresses. So the 24-hour war that is waging, that is raging all around us for our hearts and our minds, and those of others around us as well, needs the spoken gospel. So when we speak of the gospel, and we actually speak it, we are drawing upon divine power to destroy fortresses, to rip them down. And this is how Paul wages his war. Paul has the siege on this stronghold, and he's not concerned whether he can rip these walls down. He has divine power that he's using. And he continues this this imagery of of breaching the fortress with these divine power. If you continue in verse 5, he says, We destroy arguments. So you've kind of taken siege to the fortress, and now you're going to destroy it. You're going to bring it down, right? He's bringing it down. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Destruction. Again, Happy Mother's Day. It's a lot of destruction and war here. Destruction of these strongholds. And this time it's, it's arguments and lofty opinions that stand as this wall, as it were, against true knowledge of the living God. And Paul is waging war with these, against these arguments, against these wrong teachings that they have, with right teaching, with the true gospel. Now when we, we read this, like, we want to consider that, that some of you today might be in this position. Like you might have and think, and we're looking about and thinking about this gospel, this good news from Jesus Christ, and you might think, I have a lot of arguments against it. I have a lot of opinions that might make you think that that's not right and that's not how I should live. Maybe Jesus, how, how could He be both God and a man? And maybe He wasn't a man. Maybe He was God, and so His suffering was kind of not a big deal. Or maybe He wasn't God, and so He was just a man, and so how can a man really save us? Or maybe even if I do believe in Jesus, how will I know that's enough? Can He really save me as it says? How do I even have an assurance of those things? And then there's always the thing that we even talked about last week. If I follow Jesus, that seems to mean that my fun will be over. So maybe that's an argument against it. Like, I can have Jesus or I can have fun. I'm going to choose fun. So we know life is short, right? And we don't want to look at those arguments as Christians and say, those are crazy. Now you have no business thinking that. Those aren't new. Those aren't crazy. Those are normal things. But here's what we need to question. Are they in line with truth? See, if, if you're there, my encouragement is, is to look at Christianity and to, to look into it because it holds up so much not to look into. Right? There's this opportunity we're saying of eternal life with God forever. That's a pretty big prize. It's, it's worth your consideration. This idea that you can have a relationship with the one true living God is a pretty big idea. And this is what Christianity holds out. And so it's, it's worth looking into. It's too big, too good to be ignored completely. And so look into it. And here's what I think will happen is that the evidence of the resurrection is pretty compelling to people. That 
that Jesus was a man and He died and He was raised from there, that's pretty compelling evidence. And that's the kind of thing that can tear down those arguments. And so if you're there and you're searching, look into this Christ. Maybe some of you are there. And Paul is laying siege and destroying walls, but he does the next thing of war too. So you lay siege, you you tear down the walls, what do you do? You take captives. In the end of verse 5 he says this, And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now often you would hear this, and you've likely heard this kind of teaching, that you, you, you take your personal thought life captive to obey Christ. Like you're working to take your thoughts captive to Christ. But here's what's happening here. Paul isn't talking about taking his own thoughts captive. He's talking about taking his opponent's thought captive. And he's not talking about he is working on it to do it. He's saying, once again, he's doing divine power, these divine weapons. He's not doing it with all of his great power and skill. He's, he's taking these thoughts captive by the power of the Spirit. And so what's going on here is he, he's taking their thoughts captive to obey Jesus. He's, he's binding up their wrong thinking with right teaching. So we don't see ourselves as those who are, alright, I've got to take every one of my thoughts captive. So if, if, if I have a crazy thought, boom, I've got, got to take after it. Take it captive. But we ought to be thinking from kind of the other side of it. That what's happening here is that we are to let our thoughts be taken captive. We are to let Paul in the Scripture examine our thoughts Lifting up our thoughts, our arguments, our opinions to the light of God's Word. And seeing how that takes us captive and changes our thoughts based on that. And we need to see that if we're actually going to take these thoughts captive, that we're we're not the ones who are actually taking the action. We're letting the Spirit work on us. And so we're inviting both the Scripture and the Spirit to, to open us up. Show us where these thoughts are, these arguments, these opinions that aren't in line with you. That aren't in line with right teaching and aren't in line with the right gospel. That's what we're doing here. We need our lives and our thoughts and our arguments and our opinions opened up to the Bible. And we need to see what needs to be torn down. What doesn't line up? What isn't obedient to Jesus? Well, how will we know? There's black and white, sure, but what about some of the gray areas? Well, that's once again, we're not doing this. We're letting the Spirit work and lead. Paul destroys and he captures by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we don't take our own thoughts captive like we thought. We let Paul and the Scripture... Examine us, let the Spirit work. So he's laid siege, he's destroyed walls, he's taken captives, and now he's going to do what they all do, he's going to dole out the punishment. Verse 6, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. Paul's saying in verse 6, he's ready, he's willing to do what's necessary if they will not submit themselves, if they will not be reconciled, he's willing to go to war to the very end. But notice what he does. He wants to stop their influence of these opponents, but he says, when? When? And this is an excellent reminder that in the midst of this war and destruction that can bring up all these crazy images, that Paul wages war differently. Because he's reminding us why he's waging this war. Paul is appealing to them. He's calling them back to faithfulness. He's still being patient. He's pointing them his authenticity, you continue in verse 7, he says, Look at what's before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. As an apostle, Paul had authority. You remember the story in Acts, Paul wasn't around at this point, but there's apostles 
that are ministering. And Ananias and Sapphira come into the situation. They lie to these apostles. And the apostles have the authority to bring them to destruction, right? They die. This is the authority that apostles have to kind of pronounce judgment or life. But Paul wants to use this really, really well. He wants to use it to reconcile. He wants to use it to draw them in. He's warring, but he's warring in love. He's not an intimidator. He's not a bully. He's building. And he wants to build. He continues on in verse 9. I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak. And his speech of no account. Not a much different argument than what he said earlier in verse 1, that they're kind of talking about Paul as this pushover. He sounds really mean, but his bark is way worse than his bite. He's not really going to take action and do anything. That he is just this person who, when he's around you, you'll see he's weak. So don't worry about him. He sounds pretty fierce, but don't worry about it. Just follow us. Follow us. His letters seem bold. But he seems weak. But Paul is suggesting here that he is being misread on both accounts. That he's weak in person and that he's bold when away from them. If you look in verse 11. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. See, his letters seem bold and weighty and strong. But he's saying, I'm not doing and writing those letters to intimidate you, but to draw you back. I'm not writing to be fierce. I'm writing to reconcile. And the same thing is true of his bodily presence. It seems unimpressive. Paul's weak. He looks like the penguin. You can push him over. But he says, this is, this is meekness. He's, he's telling them, you've misinterpreted meekness with weakness. I'm not weak in my physical presence with you. I'm meek. I'm trying to draw you back to the gospel. Draw you back to right teaching. And so Paul is waging war against his opponents because they oppose the gospel. And he uses strong words at times. And he has bold confrontations at times. He is meek at times when face to face. But he appeals. And he gently rebukes them. See, he may be at war, but the war is waged with a goal. And that goal is reconciliation. Of both them to him, but primarily them to God. And so isn't it interesting how Paul goes about attacking these opponents? He doesn't do it like we'd normally think about, especially when we think about war. He goes about attacking them, destroying thoughts, destroying opinions. Not destroying people. He is trying to win their minds and their hearts back as well. He destroys their thoughts and their opinions. He may be at war, but what his war is, is for the sake of reconciliation. And so here, right alongside the imagery of war... Paul wants not to destroy people, but to reconcile them. So he wages war on their thoughts and minds. And as we consider the war that's all around us, this 24-hour-a-day battle for our minds and our hearts and the hearts of our neighbors and friends and family members and children, all along is going on. As we consider how to wage that war and why to wage that war, we need to be reminded, as Paul was, of the why. Why are we doing this? I like this kind of modern hymn that I think sums it up well. It says, Our call to war, to love the captive soul, but to rage against the captor. And with the sword that makes the wounded whole, we fight with faith and valor. 
not waging war against the captive soul. Although they might oppose us and accuse us, they're not the enemy primarily. They are held by a captive. And we don't fight this warfare trying to destroy and despise them. We fight for the means of reconciliation. With this sword that makes the wounded whole, we fight with faith and we fight with power. There's no sitting on the sidelines. We're, we're in this thing, storming the keep. Is this not what Paul does? Wages the war, not against the captive soul, but against the captor. He destroys strongholds and arguments and opinions and love for his opponents. Is this not what God does? And He takes out sin without taking us out? As He goes to the cross desiring to reconcile sinners to Himself. You see, the cry of Paul and the cry of God and our cry as ministers of reconciliation ought to be the same. Be reconciled to God. And if you're not reconciled to God, turn to Jesus The war is real. The opponents are real. The arguments are real. But Jesus is risen and that changes everything. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank You for raging against the captor. And we pray that You would help us to withstand the attacks that we're constantly under. To stand firm in the faith. We also pray that You would help us as ministers of reconciliation take up the right kind of battle for the right reasons with the right means. That we might see more reconciled to You. God, keep us from error as we think and talk about war. That we would be reminded that we're not warring against people physically, but that we're trying to let their hearts and their minds be drawn by the love of Christ. God, we pray that the love that has captured us would also send us. That we would, like Paul, be willing to fight where we need to fight so that many who are wounded could be made whole. It's in Jesus' name we pray.